Welcome to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences, inspiring centuries of scientific progress. Today on the podcast, we're going to do something a little different. We're just hitting an incredible milestone, and we want to share it with you. Sunday, January 29th, 2017, marks the 200th anniversary of the very first meeting of an organization called the Lyceum of Natural History in the City of New York, which changed its name around 60 years later to the New York Academy of Sciences. This makes the Academy one of the oldest ongoing scientific organizations in the country. Ongoing organizations of any kind, really. And our two centuries have been so full of interesting history, distinguished members, and important science that today we wanted to share a little bit of that history with you. How the Academy was founded, some of the highlights from our past, the overarching philosophies that have guided our change and growth over the years, and a sense of the scope of all the amazing programs we're doing now as we enter our third century of supporting science in New York, around the country, and around the world. The first thing that's always made the Academy special is the fact that we are the New York Academy of Sciences. The striving international spirit of the city we call home has always been a big part of how we do what we do. Here's Dr. Simon Batts, professor of history at John Jay College here in New York, and the man who literally wrote the book on the Academy's history. That book, Knowledge, Culture, and Science in the Metropolis, the New York Academy of Sciences 1817 to 2017, is available now in a newly updated edition as part of the annals of the New York Academy of Sciences. The Academy has always looked towards the context of the city and has asked itself how, how can we be significant and relevant within the cultural context of science within New York. And New York City in the 19th century when we were founded was a pretty amazing place. For one thing, it was growing at an astounding rate. Between 1800 and 1840, the population of the city more than quintupled from 60,000 to more than 325,000. By 1880, it was 1.2 million. By 1900, more than 4 million. And this newborn metropolis, full of energy and ambition, was on a continent that was still largely unknown to science. The natural history, the plant and animal life of the United States was relatively unknown. It was like a virgin territory that scientists could go out and discover. The vast majority of the continent was still wilderness, and even the settled parts along the East Coast hadn't been studied and cataloged in any kind of organized way. And they were chock full of species of plants and animals unlike anything anywhere in the world. It was a bounty of scientific opportunity, just wide open and waiting. Now, back in Europe, study of things like botany, zoology, and geology were dominated by the landed gentlemen who belonged to long-standing organizations like the Royal Society in London. But here, in the United States, anyone with a good eye, a little skill, and some free time could strike out from their back door and observe and record a species of plant or animal for the very first time. So people are going out to New Jersey, they're going north up into Upper Manhattan, which was still countryside at the time. 
and they're collecting as much as they can in their particular speciality, whatever it happens to be. They're making observations and they're trying to write up the papers and publish the papers in some kind of journal. But what journal? Who do you present these findings to? For all the opportunities of discovery, the United States at the time had almost no scientific infrastructure. American colleges and universities of the day were mostly finishing schools, where sons of wealthy families could learn just enough Latin, philosophy, and English literature to not feel out of place in a high-class salon in Boston or Philadelphia. The only place where science was really taught at all was in medical schools, which at the time were independent trade schools not affiliated with colleges. But there, they only taught biology in the context of human anatomy, and just enough botany to know which herbs had been proven to be medicinal. The societies and journals of Europe were an ocean away, and the few scientific societies that had appeared in the U.S. were mostly social clubs for wealthy men, completely closed to the middle-class amateurs who were doing most of the real science. And so, in 1817, Inspired by the formation of a similar organization in Philadelphia a few years earlier, a small group of Manhattan medical students and their professors founded a new organization, a lyceum, where they could meet regularly and present their latest discoveries to each other and discuss the amazing natural history of North America. Over the next few decades, the lyceum grew, holding regular lectures and starting to build a library and collection of specimens for the use of its members. And unlike the famous scientific societies of Europe, it was open to anyone who had something of value to contribute. What was important was your passion for science, not your personal pedigree. And these early members of what would become the Academy, people like Samuel Latham Mitchell and John Torrey, may not be household names today, but they were really some of the founding fathers of the American scientific community. As an example of the kind of passionate young men who made up the Lyceum of Natural History, let's look at a botanist by the name of Asa Gray. The Lyceum gave him an important early break in the way that most young scientists desperately need one. They gave him a paying job. He came from upstate New York. He was interested in science. He got a job at the Academy in 1835, 1836. And he was like a curator um, of the academy, looking after the building. And what he was able to go on and do, from this position of glorified custodian to the Lyceum's growing collection of specimens, was both truly extraordinary and also representative of some of the important themes that academy members have held dear in the centuries since. To begin with, he was a prime example of the kind of intense exploration of the natural history of North America that was so new and so needed at the time of the Academy's founding. He collected his findings and those of his fellow botanists into a massive book, The Manual of the Botany of the Eastern United States, now known just as Gray's Manual, which basically did for botany what John James Audubon's The Birds of America did for ornithology. Here's Dr. Charles Davis, professor of organismic and evolutionary biology at Harvard University and director of Harvard's Herbaria. Where I kind of reflect on, on Gray and um, kind of stand back in awe was it was really sort of um, Gray who more or less single-handedly assembled this, this knowledge of what plant species existed in this region of North America and, and how, how you would identify them. 
and how broad their ranges were. There are still vast areas of the world whose flora we only vaguely understand, and it's because we don't have these kind of synoptical treatments of, of a region for the species that, that live in these regions. You know, I think you could argue that we know the flora of the United States reasonably well, and this is in no small part to the, the effort of, of Gray. It was kind of astonishing what he was able to accomplish at, at, the, at that time. In addition to his landmark publications, Gray did two things that Academy members have always done. First, he worked to use New York, and later Boston, as bases to build global networks of scientists. And second, he used his skill and energy to found other important scientific institutions. In Gray's case, the Harvard Herbaria that Dr. Davis now runs. So Gray was um, instrumental in really building a network of, of plant biologists um, at, a, at a global level, but especially through connections that he established with botanists that were working in and across uh, Europe. And it's through those connections that many plants filtered into the Harvard University Herbaria and became really the, the foundation of the, of the collection at Harvard. Today, what we recognize as, as Gray's Herbarium. Among the other incredibly important institutions that early Academy members were instrumental in founding were the New York Botanical Garden, the New York Public Library, the American Museum of Natural History, and New York University. And it's no accident that Gray's fame came through publication. As crucial as it is today, writing and reading the latest books and papers was even more important to scientists back then. Here's Dr. Douglas Broughton, Vice President for Scientific Publications here at the Academy, followed by Dr. Batts. Publication for the Academy was key. I mean, it was central to really being a, a scientific organization, especially at the beginning of the Academy. I mean, you had to have some kind of access to science public, publishing. That was networking in the early 19th century. There was no other way to network, right? You had no telephones. You couldn't call your friends. Uh, and getting anywhere, you know, going to Europe was, was a... Uh, a long, long process. So you published in a journal, and then journals were exchanged. So back in the early days of the Academy, we had this enormous exchange of our journal with other journals from all over the world. And the library here had copies of journals from all over the big institutions in Europe, and they got ours, and so that's how we, we exchanged information. When you have the publications reaching out, not just reaching out to other cities in the United States, but reaching out internationally, then the Academy becomes part of the international community of science. And more and more it gets its support from that international network, as well as from the network of scientists within New York City. And indeed, one of our most important programs is also our longest running, our journal, the Annals of the New York Academy of Sciences. Dr. Broughton is its current editor-in-chief. Well, we just finished volume uh, 1,386. Uh, so that goes all the way back to volume one in uh, 1879. That's of Annals of the New York Academy of Sciences. In its previous name, Annals of the Lyceum of Natural History, there's another 50 years of volumes in uh, under that name. So that's what's so remarkable about the journal on the one hand, because you have today so many journals that have started in the past 20 years, or even new journals that start every year. 
rarely do you have a journal, and I'm not saying this because I work here, but rarely do you have a journal that started in 1824 and has really been published continuously since then. Also, unlike many other journals, the Annals covers a huge range of subjects across all the sciences, each issue presenting a variety of papers on a particular theme. We have eight review series that are published annually in areas like evolutionary biology, immunology, neurology and psychiatry, antimicrobial therapeutics. Recently, this, this year, in, uh, we published a volume on uh, meditation research. Uh, we had a big uh, two-volume production of papers on countermeasures against uh, terrorism. And this broad range of subjects is really indicative of something that's been important to the Academy from the very beginning, that it's a place where scientists can meet and learn across disciplines. That's a theme you're going to hear again before the end of this podcast. I think what really uh, characterizes an analyst paper is that it's a paper written not just for specialists in the field. I'm always keeping in mind the fact that our, some of our most avid readers are our members. And they're not experts in all the topics that we cover, so I want the papers to be of interest if they want to read on cognitive neuroscience or something that's out of their field. So that's uh, something we really uh, work on, especially when we're uh, editing papers and trying to keep them written well. Currently, there's a new issue about twice a month, and each one is the result of around a year of writing, editing, and preparation. And because of all that hard work, it's maintained a really high level of quality over the nearly 200 years of its existence. In 2014, the journal Nature published a list of the 100 all-time most cited scientific papers in history. Amongst all the hundreds of thousands of papers published in tens of thousands of journals, two of those 100 came from the annals. Now, back when the Academy was still the Lyceum, it had several primary functions providing a place where the members could meet and give lectures, supporting their research and collecting trips, publishing the annals, and maybe most importantly at the time, amassing a collection of books, journals, and scientific specimens. Now keep in mind that the New York Public Library wasn't founded until 1895, and the Museum of Natural History until 1897. So for many decades, the Lyceum's scientific library was the best in the city and its specimen collection was the closest thing the city had to a museum of science. All of that came to an abrupt end in 1866, when the Academy's headquarters, which had recently moved, burned to the ground in a terrible fire. Here's Dr. Batts, followed by Dr. Broughton. The Academy ended up uh, for a short time in rooms in the NYU Medical School. And at one point, that medical school was in a building on 14th Street, and it was next to the Academy of Music. And one evening after a performance at the Academy of Music, a fire broke out after the audience had gone home. And the fire destroyed practically everything on that block, including the New York Academy of Sciences and all the museum collections, which were probably pretty extensive because that was the only collecting going on in New York before 1866. All of the collections were destroyed, so it could no longer be a museum of natural history. It, it was not only the book library, but it was the museum of natural artifacts that had been collected over the years. I mean, all of it was uh, unique, chunks of it irreplaceable, and, and unfortunately, you know, we don't have it today that we're uh, 
You could only imagine what it would be like to have been able to retain that. And this left the Lyceum with a bit of a dilemma. If it wasn't going to be a museum and library, what was it going to be? They're trying to deal with this question. They have a membership with a wide variety of interests. How can we get them all on the same page? And also, how can we get to be better known in the city? After a decade of regrouping, they decided to rebrand, becoming the New York Academy of Sciences in 1876. And then, as the 19th century ended and the 20th began, the newly reminted academy searched for ways to be a new kind of organization. In the 1890s, the Academy's leadership hit upon the idea of holding a series of exhibitions at their new offices at Columbia University, a series of kind of mini world's fairs for the sciences, where the public could come and be exposed to the very latest discoveries in a variety of fields. The first exhibition in 1894 isn't a big success. It doesn't get much notice, but the second is a totally different story. The next year, 1895, One of the organizers, one of the sponsors was J.P. Morgan, got untold amount of money, and he's actually involved in planning the exhibition in the academy. Another is Seth Lowe, who becomes the mayor of New York City and also the president of Columbia. They have a display in paleontology, display in anatomy, in zoology, they have a photography display. Photography is a big thing at the time. They have an electricity display, and they were successful. They got a huge amount of publicity in the newspapers. The fourth of these exhibitions in 1897 even featured a talk by one of the very great geniuses of the age, Nikola Tesla, who very rarely spoke publicly. He gave a lecture on a brand new discovery called Ronchen rays, which we now call X-rays. And I think it's tribute to the Academy's success that they can attract Tesla. And over the 140 years since, the Academy has become world famous for holding high-level meetings and lectures on the most important topics in science. Here's Dr. Brooke Gridlinger, the Academy's current Chief Scientific Officer for Scientific Programs. So the New York Academy of Sciences presents approximately 70 conferences a year, and they happen here at our headquarters in Seven World Trade Center in New York City, but also at other locations across the United States and around the world. So each year we bring together thousands of experts that come from academia, industry, government, the nonprofit sector from around the world to share their advances and engage in a really interactive dialogue about pressing problems facing society or areas where there have been tremendous and innovative breakthroughs in science and technology. And these events cover a really enormous range of topics across all the sciences. Just last month, December 2016, the Academy hosted events on topics as diverse as the role of inflammation in Alzheimer's disease, applying genomics to the archaeology of the Americas, the effect of nutrition on aging, and the effect of dreaming on the unconscious mind. And over the past century and a half, the Academy has been proud to host a number of events that have been real landmarks in their fields. For example, let's go back to the 1940s, when the Academy began a series of symposia on what was then a brand new discovery in medicine, antibiotics. Here's Dr. Batts. And it's not until 1946 that you get the first conference of all the scientists who are working on the antibiotics 
And from that moment on, almost annually, every year, the Academy sponsors a conference on one antibiotic or another. Now, please understand, this meeting in 1946, which was organized by a professor of biochemistry from Rutgers University by the name of Selman Waxman, wasn't just the first conference on antibiotics at the Academy. It was the first one held anywhere. Here's Dr. Karen Bush, professor of practice in the biotechnology program at Indiana University, who also worked for many years on problems involving antibiotic development at pharmaceuticals companies, including Squibb, Wyeth, and Johnson & Johnson. In 1946, we knew about penicillin. We knew about some of the aminoglycosides that uh, Selman Waxman had worked on, but people had not really paid a lot of attention to this in the scientific literature. Several years before this, uh, Waxman had tried to organize a session, just a session of four or five people to sit around and talk about antibiotics, about the discovery, about the spectrum of activity, the bacteria that could be affected by the antibiotics that he was finding. He couldn't get a round table of four people to talk about this. So to have a full symposium, such as the one that was uh, set up in 1946, in that short period of time was really remarkable. And in short order, streptomycin, the particular antibiotic explored at this first meeting, became a medical sensation because it was the first truly effective treatment for a terrible global disease, tuberculosis. And TB was uh, was known at that point to be a very serious disease. There was no known cure for it, and streptomycin was a was a wonder drug. And the fact that it was able to cure TB, to treat TB in a way that people had never expected it to be treated, was uh, quite a surprise to many at that point. Streptomycin and the other antibiotic compounds discussed by Waxman and others at these early meetings are still largely the antibiotics that we use today. Uh, Some of our more successful drugs that are in development now include aminoglycosides, which are in the same class as streptomycin. We still are looking at new tetracyclines. We're still looking at modifications of penicillins or beta-lactams. So the drugs that we're using today are all based on the work that Waxman described in this particular conference that was sponsored in 1946. After these first meetings, the Academy became a real center for symposia on antibiotic research, holding them almost annually for many decades, on topics that shifted to track the most interesting work in the field. By the 1970s, this meant not so much work on what antibiotics could do to cure disease, but rather their limitations, the way they can become unusable as diseases evolve resistances to them. Here's Dr. Julian Davis, Professor Emeritus of Microbiology and Immunology at the University of British Columbia. In the early 60s, people didn't really think that this was going to happen, but uh, this, this did happen very quickly. And by the 70s, there was drug resistance to you know, almost um, every compound that uh, the pharmaceutical companies had developed. Dr. Davis attended the first of these antibiotics resistance conferences at the Academy, held in 1972. I think this was one of the first meetings where um, the scientists and a lot of companies got involved. 
my recollection is that um, there must have been 30 um, pharmaceutical companies in the major pharmaceutical companies. And it was certainly unusual to me at that time. Um, I had very little contact with the pharmaceutical industry and especially from other countries. And it was, um, you know, surprising to learn about these and the work they were doing on resistance and try to find ways to um, block the resistance mechanisms in some way. Um, and it was a truly international meeting, uh, which was, I think was very important because I think a lot of the people there um, really didn't have contact with industry in quite the same way. And that quality, putting people together in a room who wouldn't ordinarily speak or even be aware of each other, is really what has always made Academy events special. Here's Dr. Gridlinger. So when you're a scientist, it's pretty much guaranteed that you're going to know who the other major scientific researchers are in your particular field that are pursuing the same or similar research questions that you are. So when you go to scientific conferences in your field, chances are you're going to see those people present data similar to what you're pursuing. And that's great. As a scientist, you need to stay abreast of the new discoveries and advances in your field of research. But coming to an academy conference, you're going to see people present research that's a little bit outside of the box. Our goal is not just to put a biologist in the room with other biologists, but to put them in the room with chemists and physicists and mathematicians and philosophers and nutritionists and computer scientists. And the results of this cross-fertilization of ideas are really pretty remarkable. So we did a survey recently asking some questions of our community that come to academy conferences. And we learned some really interesting things. One in three people attending an academy event altered the course of their research after learning new information at that meeting. 15% of people met somebody new at the conference and went on to develop a new research collaboration or partnership with that new contact. 12% of people met somebody new at the meeting and went on to co-author a research proposal or a publication with that new contact. And almost one in 10 started a joint business venture with someone that they met for the first time at an Academy conference. And since the very beginning, the Academy's members and its leadership have looked for ways to utilize this incredible global interdisciplinary network starting programs and initiatives of all kinds to address serious problems that face the world. Here's Dr. Megan Groom, the Academy's Senior Vice President for Education. To me, the mission of the Academy is to identify persistent problems in the world, these big, hairy, audacious problems, and get people to solve them. For an example of one of these big interdisciplinary initiatives, let's jump back again to the turn of the 20th century and the Academy's 17th president, a well-known botanist and geologist named Nathaniel Lord Britton. Here's Dr. Batts. So Nathaniel Lord Britton was another one of these people who was more energy than 10 other people and more enthusiasm. He was responsible for the New York Botanical Garden which of course is not only a wonderful resource forever in New Yorker, but is also a great center of scientific research now in 2016. 1903, 
and Britain is now the leading light in the academy. And he comes up with this brilliant idea, and he says, look, Puerto Rico, to do a scientific survey of Puerto Rico. And it was a brilliant idea. Puerto Rico was very much on everyone's mind at the time, because it had just been acquired by the United States at the conclusion of the Spanish-American War. And like the United States had been a century before, it had never been thoroughly examined in a scientific way. What Britain realizes is that nobody knows anything about this island. Nobody's ever done a survey of the natural history or the geology of Puerto Rico. So it's quite literally virgin territory. Britain and the Academy organized huge field trips of top-level scientists of all kinds to study Puerto Rico from every angle, from its land to its water to its plants and animals. And every year the scientists come down from New York to Puerto Rico and it lasts for 30 years. And they can, every year they publish a series of volumes of the survey. So by the time it's finished, 1944, you've got this huge stack of volumes that tell you everything you want to know about the natural history of Puerto Rico. And it was a, an academy project from the very beginning to the end. And it was tremendously important. Current large-scale academy programs that seek to tackle big questions in an interdisciplinary way include the Alzheimer's Disease and Dementia Initiative, the Global Compact for Early Childhood Development, and the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science. And another of those huge, hairy problems the Academy is looking to address is maybe the most important one, because solving it would give the world the tools to solve all the rest. We're talking about science education. And education in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, isn't just about producing the next generation of scientists. It's about making sure that every child has the tools they need to succeed in the 21st century. Here's Dr. Groom. As an educator, I would say that if you want a job in what we call the knowledge-based economy, you need to have a grounding in STEM. And so there, there probably are jobs out there that don't require you to use a computer, don't require you to problem solve, don't require you to work in teams, which are some basic STEM competencies. So it doesn't mean that you're going to spend all of your time pipetting. It means you need to use the content knowledge and what we would call the habits of mind or the ways of thinking that you learn by doing things in STEM education. And the Academy's huge slate of education programming, much of which falls under the umbrella of the Global STEM Alliance, one of our largest and most ambitious programs ever, seeks to serve students of every age, from college all the way down to preschool. So for our preschool kids and nursery school kids, we are expanding our after-school STEM mentoring program. And we send scientists with robots into work with pre-K and preschool classrooms. And those robots are specifically designed to be hands-on, very active, and very inquiry-based. When we get to elementary school and middle school, we're doing our after-school STEM mentoring program, as well as programs um, like our STEM Bonanza, which is a big, fun science fair that we do here where there's different stations. We're doing scientists in residence where teachers are paired with um, scientists to be able to do research projects in the classroom. And we're ever expanding our work where kids come here and do workshop type classes. And when it comes to high school, the time when most people are first giving serious thought to what kind of career they want to pursue, 
The Academy is doing a bunch of exciting things to find the next generation of scientists and mentor them. One of these programs is a reboot, if you will, of a popular and successful program the Academy ran in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, called the Junior Academy. Here's Selena Morgan Standard, Senior Vice President of Digital Learning Solutions here at the Academy. The Junior Academy is actually a program that ran at the New York Academy of Sciences until the mid-70s. Um, it was a program that was based locally in its first iteration, and students, very bright and precocious students from the New York region, <laughs> would uh, come to the Academy for programming that they primarily uh, developed and led. So what the Academy really did was they opened up their doors and gave the students a place to meet and come together on a weekly basis, and they also opened up their Rolodex. And so they said to the students, you know, here are the scientists in, in our network. Feel free to reach out to them under the guise of the New York Academy of Sciences, a junior academy, and, um, and make of this program what you will. And so I think there was a real, uh, this, the, you know, the alumni that I've spoken to, they really appreciated that and it launched their scientific careers. Here's one of those alums of the Junior Academy 1.0, Dr. Eric Mortensen, a gastroenterologist who spent a number of decades working in the pharmaceutical industry, most recently with Pfizer. Well, I was in high school back in the um, mid-1970s, and you know, at the time, it's been, remember that there was no internet, there was no at-home learning, so that... Uh, you were really limited as to what you could learn about the sciences by what you had available to you. Uh, the Junior Academy gave us a chance to basically pull together students from all around New York City who shared a common fascination with science and who really wanted to do more than what they could find in high school. It made us adventurous, it made us more creative, it made us much more self-confident about what we could do and I think made us much more prepared for what we then did in college, in graduate school, and the rest of our life. So I've always seen the Junior Academy as the first real step that I made in deciding to become a professional scientist. When we decided to revamp the Junior Academy just a few years ago, we instead based it around an online platform. Still exclusive, still student-driven, but open to the most promising science-motivated high school students around the world, not just in New York City. So as we were thinking about what does the new iteration of the Junior Academy look like, we wanted there to we wanted to maintain the the student led aspect, so giving the students a lot of autonomy and the ability to decide what and drive the direction of the programming, and we wanted to also be able to give them opportunities for hands-on research in a virtual way. So uh, we have a platform, a proprietary platform that we developed and launched last uh, March. Um, called Launchpad, and that's a virtual uh, collaborative project-based learning platform. Launchpad allows them to work globally in teams. We have students from 55 countries in our Junior Academy program now, and on Launchpad they can find each other around innovation projects and challenges that our corporate and institutional partners uh, put forward to the community, and then the students can find each other around topics that are of interest. Here's Smitty Shaw, an 11th grader from Bethpage, New York, and a member of the inaugural class of the Junior Academy 2.0. You go through a really rigorous selection process, and then you finally, uh, once, once you get accepted, your goal is to solve tomorrow's challenges. So we get presented with a set of challenges every, at every given interval, 
And uh, the goal of the students is to form teams, use the expert STEM mentorship that we have on the platform to solve the challenges. So first, what we have is these like periods of time where you learn about how to properly conduct research, how to properly create a prototype, how you test your prototype using the scientific method, how you analyze your results, and how you iterate your solution. The problem Ms. Shaw and her teammates chose to tackle was about water filtration. What's a portable, inexpensive way for people in areas without reliable access to clean drinking water to turn dirty water into safe, drinkable water? What they came up with was a really interesting filter built into a backpack. So our filter used emerging nanotech aspects, a layer of um, carbon nanotubes. And what we were able to do is we were able to create a solar circuit powered by like a normal $1 cheap solar cell. And that solar cell gets activated and that sends an electric current through a layer of carbon, uh, multi-walled carbon nanotubes. And that multi-walled carbon nanotubes, when the current passes through it, it basically electrifies any sort of bacteria or, uh, you know, deforms any viruses that are passing through the filter. My team was made out of a student from Maryland. I myself am from New York. Um, and a girl from Macedonia and a girl from Scotland and our mentor was from India. So we had a really, like, diverse global group. And like Dr. Mortensen with the first Junior Academy, Ms. Shah has found this new Junior Academy to be completely transformational, opening up whole new concepts of what's possible for her in science. I came into high school wanting to be nothing but a doctor. Like, I'm going to go to med school. It's going to be it. Like, I'm going to be a pediatrician, and I know. But then... Like, uh, through the Junior Academy, I was exposed to so many different fields, and it really opened my mind up. Like, I never knew before that, you know, nanotech, like, computational nanotechnology research was a thing. And this new Junior Academy is just one small piece of a huge tapestry of Academy programs that seek to give mentorship and support to future and current scientists at every stage of their lives, from childhood to college to career and beyond. Here's Dr. Groom. And I think if I were to sort of sneakily say what the mission of the Global STEM Alliance is, it's actually just a really big 20-year-long membership drive to get people when they turn 18 to, to become members. And, and when they become members, find, find their community. For those young kids to come here and see what scientists do, see who scientists are, um, and, and just be, you know, be in that contact. Um, so I love my favorite is when we do our networking challenges, where we're bringing in you know middle and elementary school kids, and they're they're networking with our VIPs, they're networking with our board members, and I see the scientists get down with their clipboard and they get down on one knee and they listen. I mean that's that is that is something that is incredible. And so. The academy that's come out of this 200-year history is one where there's really something for everyone, from tenured professors to school children to the general public. It's a place where, every day, some of the world's biggest problems are being discussed and puzzled over by some of the world's smartest people. And it's a place that's going to keep doing everything it can to support science for at least another 200 years. Thanks for listening to the New York Academy of Sciences podcast. This episode was produced by your host, David Hoffman, with administrative and scientific oversight by Dr. Douglas Broughton and Alexis Clements. 
Thanks to all the experts who appeared in this episode. Dr. Simon Batts of John Jay College, Dr. Charles Davis of Harvard University, Dr. Karen Bush of Indiana University, Dr. Julian Davis of the University of British Columbia, Dr. Eric Mortensen, Smitty Shaw, and Dr. Douglas Broughton, Dr. Brooke Gridlinger, Dr. Megan Groom, and Dr. Selena Morgan-Standard of the New York Academy of Sciences. For more information about the Academy, as well as to listen to other podcasts, please visit www.nyas.org. For more about our 200th anniversary celebration, visit bicentennial.nyas.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and follow us on social media, at NYA Sciences on Twitter and the New York Academy of Sciences on Facebook and LinkedIn. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences, where brilliant minds come together to spark innovative solutions to global challenges.